If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning with, to the Gospel according to Mark. We are here on week 54 of our walk through Mark's Gospel, Jesus according to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And as we go to God's Word, let's go to God again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that for those who are walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. And we thank you, Father, for the light that Jesus has brought to this dark world. We thank you for the light of your world, your word before us. And so, Father, would your word and spirit have their way with us? Would you illuminate our eyes to see your glory? Open our ears to hear you speak. Open our minds to understand your truth. Open our hearts to receive the good news of salvation in Christ. And strengthen our hands and feet to live life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Not worthy in that we deserve it, but worthy that it would display the salvation that we have in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're continuing to remember last week. You may remember that it was an anointing to remember, and today it is a meal to remember. Um, do any of you all watch the local news? I um, sometimes tell myself I'm never going to watch the local news again. Why? Because the leading stories, especially from any of the Cincinnati channels, are what? Somebody has been killed. There's a death, a violent death, a murder, a senseless killing. The anchors sometimes are at a loss for words. How to describe this random killing with no purpose. So then you turn on the national and international news and what do you find? The world at war. And what happens during war is people die. And there's often this statement made that that the war has to end in victory so that the soldiers did not die in vain. No one wants to die in vain. Well, Jesus has told his disciples thus far three times directly that he is going to die. We saw that in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And how did the disciples respond to this news when Jesus said that he was going to suffer, he was going to be crucified, but rise again, what did they do? They first rebuked Jesus. Peter took him aside and basically said, Jesus, this is not the way it should go. But of course, Jesus rebuked Peter. And then the other times that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, they sort of just ignored him. They didn't know what to say. So the questions must be going through the mind of the disciples and the minds of the reader. Will this upcoming death of Jesus be in vain? What will be the meaning of his death? Well, what is Mark up to in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus? Now remember, it's important to note that he's not writing a biography as we would understand a biography, but he's writing more like a docu-drama. He's arranging the material for a purpose. 
primarily to answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? We remember that Mark's 16 chapters have a hinge at chapter 8, right almost in the middle, where there's a confession of faith to believe in Jesus, immediately followed by Jesus' call to discipleship. It's a call, remember, to deny self, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus, whose suffering and death is not just somewhere off in the distance, not even months away, not even weeks away, not even days away, but hours away. Join with me now as I read verses 12 through 16, preparations for Passover. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them as they prepared and they prepared the Passover. Again, what is Passover? Remember the beginning of chapter 14? It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember in Exodus 12, we have the, the history of the historical event. And then in Deuteronomy 16, which we heard read a few moments ago, is the practice of, of this annual feast of Passover. And it's an annual feast to commemorate what? Israel's deliverance from slavery when the Lord brought judgment by killing the firstborn of every Egyptian house, but passing over the Israelites' house where the blood of the Passover lamb had been applied. Passover also looks forward to the ultimate liberation of God's people. Now, those of you who may be familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke will notice that there's a little bit of differences in John. In fact, it might be good this week to spend some time reading 14 through 17, chapters 14 through 17, the upper room discourse in John's gospel. Well, I believe Mark's decision to use the word Passover four times in this section gives us every reason to believe that he's talking about Passover. John doesn't mention it, but Mark and the other synoptic writers do, especially given his concluding thought at the end of verse 16. In other words, the meal that we see described here is clearly Passover. And what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? Go into the city, find the place where he is to, to uh, do Passover with his disciples. And it's very similar to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where they went ahead of him at his instruction to find the donkey to bring it back so that Jesus could ride in. Well, what are we to learn from this description that we just read from Mark's gospel? Well, Mark wants us to see that the significance of the coming death of Jesus by placing it in the context of Passover. And Mark wants us to see that Jesus is in absolute, total control of the situation. Jesus' death will not be ironic, 
nor a tragic twist of fate. Jesus is orchestrating events. Jesus is not being overcome by events. Um, In the military, uh, when we couldn't get something done, we used to respond with three letters, O-B-E, overcome by events. You know, why couldn't we get this done? We were overcome by events. Jesus is orchestrating the events. He is not overcome. One commentator puts it, far from being crushed in the gears of history, Jesus was turning its wheels just as he wished. I don't know about you, but that is strong comfort for me. A God who is in control when the foundations of his own earthly life are crumbling is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when we feel like our life is falling apart. Remember our introduction to our time of prayer? Jesus, the one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Jesus who knows our weakness, Jesus is in absolute, total control. You'll see now in the rest of this passage another literary sandwich created by Mark. At the center and on the inside is the Last Supper. It's Jesus' institution of what we know now as the Lord's Supper. And on the outside are two predictions, one of betrayal and the other of denial. Mark is arranging his gospel to once again highlight the contrast. He's putting a diamond up against black velvet. And we're going to go with the order of Mark's arrangement. The Last Supper or the Lord's Supper is the central focus And at the center of Jesus' Passover with his disciples. And therefore our text will be seen in three dinnertime conversations. Before dinner, during dinner, and after dinner. Let's take a look at before dinner. A prediction of personal betrayal. Beginning in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes and is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here before dinner is a startling announcement. Truly I say to you. Jesus could have just started off and we would have read. And Jesus said, one of you will betray me. But that's not how Mark records it. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Shocking. And notice the response of the disciples. They also are shocked at this shocking statement. And they're sad. A traitor among us? No way. There is no initial suspicion of Judas. Years ago, I saw the movie Breach about Robert Hansen, an FBI agent who had been spying for the Soviet Union for years. No one knew about it. He was completely undercover operating for the Russians as an FBI agent. But eventually, 
his, his traitorous um, actions caught up with him. But no one suspected Robert Hansen. No one suspected Judas. Each disciple hopes Jesus will say, no, it's not you. Jesus here is wanting them all to see their common weakness. One of you. Jesus is saying that it could be any one of the disciples. And the key verse here in this first section is in verse 21. It's the simultaneous declaration of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Even the betrayal of Jesus is not outside God's plan. The person who will betray it does it by his own choice and he will be held responsible and subject to a severe twofold condemnation. Woe, woe to him. And it would have been better if he had not been born. Jesus knows with this that his life is governed by the teaching of, his, of Scripture and therefore he knows his death will neither be accident nor tragedy. Do you all have that same confidence about your life? Do you have confidence that, anything, that nothing that happens to you is some sort of accident or some twist of fate? but planned by a good and gracious God who is working out His purposes not only in your life, but in all creation. This announcement of betrayal is not the only shocking thing about the Passover meal. What Jesus does with the Passover liturgy is equally shocking. Instead of repeating the traditional words, Jesus will change the words. He will now reinvest the Jewish Passover with its ultimate meaning. The interpretive word Jesus inserts into the Passover liturgy here would have been shocking to his original hearers. They expected often at points in the celebration of the Passover meal, silence. But in those periods of expected silence, Jesus speaks and basically says, this meal is all about me. Join with me now as I read verses 22 through 26, the conversation during dinner, the presentation of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Here is Jesus at this Passover meal acting as the host at the table. He's the head of the household. Jesus is using the Old Testament meaning of the Feast of Passover. He's using the story of God's grace in the Exodus. Passover commemorated not just deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but also rescue from the wrath of God, the pouring out, as it were, of blood. Passover for the Jew was not just remembering, but also anticipating 
looking back at God's deliverance, looking ahead to his final deliverance. Here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, and that's more fully developed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And most of you are familiar with this. Jesus is saying, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. He's talking about atonement. He's talking about the covenant God has made with his people. Now, I want us to compare for a moment Passover, the Jewish Passover, with Jesus' own mission as Mark has been outlining. The first Passover meal was held on the night before a great deliverance. Here, this meal Jesus is instituting is also being held on the night before a great deliverance. The first Passover meal was instituted by a deliverer, Moses. Now a greater Moses is here. The first Passover meal centered on a lamb that was slain as a substitute. The first Passover meal was divided into four parts, each concluding with the drinking of a cup of wine, which represented the four promises of blessing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. I want to read verses 6 to 8. Listen to these promises that God makes. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The first Passover meal was, of course, a meal. And the benefit from food only comes by taking it and digesting it. And eating and drinking were understood in the first century as a deep and intimate form of acceptance and sharing. To live, you must eat. Jesus is communicating. Just as you are having to eat bread and drink wine to live, so also in order to live, you're going to have to take me in. You're going to have to receive me. And here they are, the night of his betrayal. He is sharing an intimate meal. He's among his friends. Did you notice in that description of what took place at the Passover, something was missing? Have y'all ever noticed that? Something was missing. There's no mention of what? The lamb. There's bread and there's wine. Where's the lamb? My friends, there was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus as our Passover lamb, the meaning of his death. Jesus' death is a sacrifice. The Old Testament makes it clear that only through the shedding of blood can sin be atoned for. There has to be death. 
Jesus' death will also be a substitution. A lamb was slain. Why? So an Israelite would not be slain. Jesus' death, therefore, is absolutely necessary. Throughout his preaching, Jesus is teaching that we are all under his judgment unless we take shelter in him. The New Testament writers, Mark included, go out of their way to tell us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Throughout this meal, Jesus is commenting on his own death. And we have to understand the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. Children, if the Old Testament is what? Promises what? Made. And the New Testament is promises kept. We see that taking place here. His death will be the fulfillment of the Passover promises. His death will be the final administration of the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham. His death will be the ratification of the new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah that's not written on stone, but written on hearts. And to keep the promises to Abraham and to David, to make a covenant of forgiveness possible, Jesus himself took the death penalty pronounced at Sinai for man's sin. So the result is even a greater rescue which Passover and Sinai promised. Any of you all done um, an insurance policy lately? Michelle and I recently did that. We're getting older. It's time to think about death. And it's important to know about the death benefits, right, of your policy. What are the death benefits? Well, here are some death benefits of Jesus. Because Jesus is inviting them at the table to appropriate his death for themselves. He gives himself for them and to them and invites them to share in the benefits of his death. Jesus is encouraging his disciples as they eat the bread and they drink the cup to 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 take him in, to to eat him. And John, as we read in John's gospel, that was a hard teaching for many. There could be no deeper symbol of total dependence upon Jesus and commitment to him than feeding on him. And when Jesus gives the disciples the bread and cup, he is explaining the unique event of the cross and offering them, without compulsion, a share in the salvation it will bring. It's an offer of forgiveness and grace, totally undeserved. And you notice, it sounded solemn, didn't it? Death. But there were promises made. And what did they do at the end? They sung a hymn. Probably... Psalm 115 to 118, most scholars think. They sung a hymn together after this meal. To be sure, the Lord's Supper is a mystery, but it is not magic. We've seen that immediately before the giving of the bread and the cup, he speaks of the failure of the disciples. And now that we'll see after dinner, he'll speak of their failure as well. Join with me as we read our final section, verses 27 through 31. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. 
And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. After dinner, a prediction of personal denial. Notice it started out earlier, from one of you will betray, to all of you will deny. A chilling prediction. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, one of the minor prophets, that the scattering is part of the refining process of God's people. The shepherd will be struck, the remnant will be tested and refined. Here again is God's sovereignty. Who strikes the good shepherd? None other than God himself. Fall away. You will all stumble. You will all take offense. One commentator says this, Jesus warns the disciples to guard against the kind of sinfulness of which most of us are guilty. Sins of weakness and irresoluteness rather than sins of intention. We do not plan on sinning, but neither do we hold the fort when we ought. Remember Jesus' words earlier from chapter 13, be on your guard, stay awake. Here are the disciples evidencing that they have not heard, they have not listened. But in the midst of this dire prediction, look at the comfort. Look at verses 28 and verse 30. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus is saying, I will rise from the dead and you will return to me. In verse 30, we read this. The rooster, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Well, how can that be comfort? Look at the stunning precision of Jesus. If he is precise here, he's precise as well in terms of his rising and them returning. Jesus will rise from the dead and go before them. Reassurance. And just as he went before them on the way to the cross, he will also go before them after he is raised from the dead. He will rise And they will return to him. So we've seen this rather interesting dinner time conversation. Before dinner, during dinner, and after dinner. And as I studied and prepared for today, I noticed that a number of folks could probably preach at least three, if not six sermons from what we just looked at. But it was chosen like this for a purpose. I wanted us to see the sandwich. I wanted us to see the outside and the inside because I believe that's where, I believe that's what Mark is wanting us to see most importantly. Why the sandwich? Why is Mark arranging his gospel like this? Notice that the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, is sandwiched between the predictions of what? Personal betrayal and personal denial. 
The account of the Lord's Supper begins with the Lord declaring that he would be betrayed by one of his disciples and ends with a promise that the rest of those men, the remaining 11, would all desert him in this hour of need. I don't know if you all have ever seen the painting of the Last Supper. Is that Da Vinci? Help me out. It's an Italian artist. I think it is. Or is it Michelangelo? Anyway, do you know what that is really a picture of at the table? Jesus is surrounded by traitors and cowards. This sandwich illustrates the truth of Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. The Christian life is a continual reminder for sinners to come to their Savior. The Lord's Supper reminds us in a powerful way that we do not deserve to be in fellowship with God, to know Him as our God and as our Savior. It is not the worthy for whom Christ gave His life, and it's not the worthy for whom God grants the privilege of peace and fellowship with Him. Who is sitting at the table with Jesus the undeserving, and the unworthy. It should be remembered concerning two of the greatest heroes of the early Christian church, that one denied his Lord three times, that was Peter, and another was a persecutor of Jesus and the church, and that would be Paul. This last supper of Jesus with his disciples is attended by traitors, and cowards. My friends, the Lord's Supper is not a table of merit that we have achieved. Rather, it is a table of grace which we receive. Not only is the Christian life a continual reminder for sinners to keep coming to their Savior, but the Christian life is a call to remember. It's a call to remember what we already know. Why? Because you and I easily forget. And the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted this night, His last meal with His closest earthly friends and companions, is a call to remember. And what do we remember? We look back to the completed work of Christ on the cross. We look back to His death. His life of perfect obedience and His sacrificial death in our place and on our behalf. But we also remember to look around and enjoy present union and communion with Christ and one another. But we also remember that we look forward to the future, to His return. Jesus is faithful to His promises. At the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus gives Himself to us in this sacred meal. We come to His table to receive Him, to commune with Him, and to be fed by Him. We are called to remember the life-giving death of Jesus. My friends, were we to celebrate the Lord's Supper after this, this would be a great introduction to it. 
Because who does Jesus invite to his table? In just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn. And we are reminded that it's not the righteous. It's not the righteous, but it's sinners Jesus came to call. And my friends, Jesus continues to call sinners to come to him. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. I don't know if you're like me, but there are some meals in my life I will never forget. The food, the company, the atmosphere, the venue, unforgettable. My friends, this is the meal that our Savior wants us to never forget. But to come and dine with Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are there in the text. Although it's Judas and the rest of the disciples, our hearts at many times are traitorous and our hearts are cowardly. But Father, we, by your kindness and mercy, have tasted and known that you are good. Father, we thank you for Christ and his invitation for sinners to come to him. Father, whether we're new in the Christian faith, whether we've been walking with Christ for years, if not decades, would we always hear the call to come to him, knowing that it is not the righteous, but sinners he came to call. For we pray in his name. Amen. Respond today, but come you